Welcome, everyone, to another episode of The Scuttlebutt. I'm your host, Sean Hall, Director of Programming with the Veterans Breakfast Club. We're a nonprofit in Western PA whose mission is to create communities of listening around veterans and their stories to connect, educate, heal, and inspire. If you've been watching The Scuttlebutt for this current season, season seven, you may have noticed that I've had a fair bit of just regular civilians on, on the podcast. And I think that's in part because there are a lot of civilians that deal with veterans, that work with veterans, that uh, provide different services for veterans. Well, this episode is uh, no different. We have on Ryan Fairfield and Tony Lupo. They are the hosts of the Warrior Next Door podcast. They started this podcast because some time ago, they started interviewing veterans for the Library of Congress. Well, they decided well, we have tons of interviews, what do we do with them? So they started a podcast where they take snippets from their interviews and they had historical context, a bunch of facts, interesting points of view uh, from their time with the veteran. Um, these guys were fantastic. Uh, I'm so excited that I was able to have them on this podcast because let's face it, in the podcast world, there are only so many military podcasts. So to have two fellow gentlemen on that are both passionate about veteran stories like I am was just a joy. Um, so I hope that you enjoy this uh, this episode uh, with both of them. And I hope that you check out the description. Please go and listen to the Warrior Next Door podcast. You can also check out their YouTube channel where they have the entire interview of these veterans that they have interviewed for the Library of Congress. Um, I'll have all the links down there. Uh, and please like, share, subscribe, and ring the bell on YouTube. So you're the first to know whenever we release new episodes. Uh, and please reach out to me, Sean, S-H-A-U-N at veteransbreakfastclub.org. I'm always interested and excited to hear uh, from our listeners. And just as an FYI, uh, my wife and I are expecting at the beginning of the year. Uh, so we will have a bit of a hiatus for the scuttlebutt, but we will be back with new episodes uh, probably in March. Um, so thank you so much for supporting the podcast and enjoying Ryan, it. Tony, welcome to the scuttlebutt. So excited to have the Warrior Next Door podcast join me today. It's always fun to have a fellow podcast guys uh, come onto the program uh, and talk about uh, why you guys are doing it. Um, we've had a couple podcasts on in the past, but it's always interesting to find out like outside of, of the scuttlebutt, what other military podcasts are out there? I've been listening to it. It's a wonderful podcast. Uh, Ryan, uh, I'd love for you to start. Welcome to the, uh, to the scuttlebutt. Can you please introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Ryan Fairfield. And first of all, thank you for, for having us, Sean. Um, uh, you know, I, uh, I'm, I'm married, father of two, um, and uh, uh, you know, uh, I've been involved with interviewing veterans uh, with my friend Tony here since about 2003. We started doing it for the Library of Congress Veterans History Project and um, have amassed, you know, quite a few, a, a pretty, pretty good collection of interviews we've done. And so, um, you know, as far as how I, I got involved in this and why, you know, I've been, uh, you know, involved in the veteran stories, you know, I had several uncles that served in the military. I myself am not former military, um, but always had an interest and, um you know, I guess it just kind of, uh, you know, permeated my life and, you know, kind of bled over into this whole thing. So uh, fortunately, having a, a buddy like Tony that I can geek out with and talk about all this stuff and that, you know, we kind of egged each other on to start doing these interviews. That's really what got us to this point, I think, for me, at least. So, um, yeah. And and so I'm Tony Lupo. Um and, you know, as mentioned, as Ryan mentioned, he and I have been collecting interviews as volunteers for the Library of Congress since 2003. We've collected well over 200 now. Mm. We continue to collect them. Uh, he and I both got to know each other as uh, geoscientists in the energy sector. So we're both a uh, fancy pants name called geophysicists. And it's, you don't meet a lot of geophysicists who enjoy World War II history or history in general, uh, general, but he and I did, and we hit it off. We've got a lot of things in common and 
And as Ryan mentioned, um, our shared uh, passion for history led us down the path of becoming volunteers and, and listening to oral histories because we felt like we felt like the best way for us, at least, to to not only you know enjoy listening to these veterans you know share with us their stories of their experiences, primarily during World War II, but also to be able to preserve them to make them available for shows like the BBC and and for various researchers and future Steve Ambroses, right? Mm -hmm. So um, so Ryan and I have been doing this for a while. It's definitely a passion project. I have a wife and uh, twin boys, and wow. uh, they've been able to tolerate uh, our chicanery for all this time. And so, uh, you know, being able to be on a show like this and hang out with a like-minded individual like you, as well as your audience, is something that is really special. We never take it for granted. And I, I want to promote it as much as possible to the audience who is listening and watching uh, to check out the Warrior Next Door podcast. You're going to have uh, descriptions or links here in the description. Uh, you might be the two first two geophysicists I think I've ever met. So you may have to, our audience went, went huh, geophysicist? So you might have to define what that is and why anybody would become a geophysicist. Oh my goodness. So a geophysicist uses physical physical methods, physics-based methods, like using seismic data, which is basically an ultrasound of the earth, mm -hmm. or looking for small changes in the gravitational and magnetic field to help us image what we can't see deep within the earth. And also geophysics is used for planetary science to be able to mm -hmm. understand what's going on up there. So if you can't see it and you can't touch it, you get in a geophysicist and he'll do the best he can to tell you what's down there or up there. Uh, did I miss anything, Ryan? Yeah, that's pretty much it. I mean, uh, it's also used in the environmental industry. Um, you know, it's really, it's remote sensing, you know, and, you know, I kind of liken, um, you know, using geophysics in the oil industry to being a treasure hunter, you know, you're using it to, uh, you know, kind of pinpoint locations where you think something could be, and hopefully you lower the odds, uh, the, lower the risk of drilling there. Sometimes you don't, sometimes it's not that way at all. So anyway, yeah, so that's kind of what we do, but you know, I've been doing it now for, oh gosh, 25 years, mm -hmm. man, that's crazy. Um, and so it's, uh, um, it's been interesting, but uh, you know, this is really something, you know, the, the, the veteran stories that the podcast stuff is something that both Tony and I, you know, talk about all the time. We'd love to be able to do full time. It's just so enjoyable and it really fills up part of your soul to, to be able to, to participate in, in this community, you know, even though we, neither of us were in the military, you know, I, well, I imagine that being a geophysicist though, there's some level of history there. There's yes. a, there's, there's a, there's a history, but that, is that I think it's like a good segue into like your passion for history? You, you totally nailed it. And I was going to, I was going to jump in because I get really excited. I'm an excitable guy. can't help it, which means sometimes interrupt people. I don't mean to do it, but it is, it is a historical science. For example, um, <clears throat> when we collect what we call seismic data, you know, we'll have hundreds of square miles of, of, of seismic data to be able to look down into the earth and get an acoustic image of the earth, just like you would get an acoustic image of, of a baby using an ultrasound. Mm -hmm. So in the same way we use sound waves to look at, at the human body, we use sound waves to look at the earth. And we can, Ryan and I have examples where we're able to image in these ultrasounds of the earth geologic features like ancient mountain ranges in river valleys that are hundreds of millions of years old. We are literally mm -hmm. looking at acoustic images of lost worlds that you can't touch anymore. And so, yeah, I think it makes a little sense that maybe Ryan and I would get into a historical type 
of a uh, of a profession being that we kind of love history. And the other reason I brought up the fact that we're geophysicists is the 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 ethos for the Warrior Next Door podcast is two things. One, anyone can do this. There's nothing special about us. We're not famous historians. And that the the stories that we have collected since 2003, over 200 in number, are from people primarily in our neighborhoods, next door to us, all around us. That 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 you don't need to be uh, certified to do this. If you have an interest in it, get out and do it. It's true. Um, you know, we talked a bit before recording that I'm you know doing this podcast, the Scuttlebutt, through the Veterans Breakfast Club. Um, but uh, it's it's so inspiring, definitely, uh, to see other civilians jumping into their veteran communities just because they're passionate about the history and the stories, just to to find and make sure that they're recorded, especially for the Library of Congress. This is something that VBC would love to get into uh, as we do have our own veterans history project. So uh, we got to swap uh, stories about that. I want to go back though to how did you guys uh, meet and, and where did the friendship sort of start when you guys said, hey, why don't we start a podcast? Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, we Tony and I crossed paths before we even worked at the same company. I was in grad school at Southern Illinois University and I was just wrapping up my my grad school studies and was getting ready to, I don't even know if I had a job yet. I can't remember, Tony, but um, I, I was in the geophysics lab at my the geoscience department and a guy that had just started the, at the, in the geophysics master's program there brings in this buddy of his and, you know, introduces me to him. Hey, Ryan, this is my friend, Tony, you know, and Tony was there. He's from Michigan. I'm from Illinois. Well, what are we doing in the same room together? Well, um, he was there to, to take the, uh, the geoscience field camp for the undergraduate degree. So he was just a couple of years behind, but, um, so I got to meet him, shook hands with him. You know, we kind of spoke for maybe 10, 15 minutes. I don't know, something like that. And then poof, that was it gone. So then I get a job working for Phillips Petroleum in Bartlesville, Oklahoma, and I'm probably two years in lo and behold, I have to go sit in on a, 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 a presentation from a potential new recruit. And it's this guy, you know, and he's like a bad penny. He just keeps turning up. And so he did a fantastic presentation on his thesis, which was way more cerebral than anything I'd ever done in my life. And, uh, and we, we, you know, he got hired and, um, you know, he and I became friends probably we were, we were friends then, but we really became friends, Tony, I think a couple of years later when we were transferred to the same field office and we were kind of you know, uh, stuck in the middle of nowhere. And we had- Boy, this sounds so military. Out. I don't mean to interrupt. This sounds so military. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny because we had a training program that we all had to go through. There was a boot camp, so to speak, with, you know, the, from the geophysics and geoscience side of the industry. And then, then they transferred us out to a location. We had to work there with that group of people and encounter and deal with all the headaches and frustrations of dealing with the cultures in those areas and stuff like that. So anyway, it was, it was interesting, but we, he and I started realizing then that we had this mutual interest in essentially World War II history. That's how it started. And there, and we got involved with the commemorative air force. Uh, you know, it's a, the group that it's a 501c3 group that pre preserves World War II airplanes and stuff, you mm -hmm. know, and um, they had a small squadron out of Amarillo, Texas, which was just about 30 miles from where we were living and working. And so we got involved with that and, you know, um, 
there was maybe, I don't know, 10 or 15 people that were involved in that squadron. It's a really small group. They had one little Stinson L5, uh, you know, artillery spotter airplane that they maintained and stuff. But we got to go for a ride in it. It was really cool. Well, then our company closed our office down up in Borger, Texas, where we were and moved us all to Houston. Mm -hmm. And then we got involved with the Houston chapter of the Commemorative Air Force. And then we started hanging out with a lot of World War II veterans. And we decided, you know what? We, I wish we could talk to these guys without, you know, appearing to be, you know, fanboys or something like that. How do we, how do we talk to them and get them to tell us their stories without burdening them or maybe making hmm. them go back and relive something that they don't want to relive, you know? And so we came across the Veterans History Project through the Library of Congress, and that became the vehicle for Tony and I to be able to go up to a veteran and say, hey, we're, we're doing interviews for the Library of Congress. We would love to interview you and get your story on DVD. We'll give you as many copies as you want for yourself and your family and your grandchildren free of charge. If you will do the interview, then we send it in the Library of Congress and your interview gets recorded for posterity in the collective, basically the collective memory of our nation. Yeah. So that was what gave us the gravitas and the confidence to really go up to these veterans and start start talking to them. And it just started from there. What do you think, Tony? Well, it was, it was actually the, um, the commemorative air force in Houston, the West Houston wing that actually was the Genesis for the warrior next door podcast in two ways. One, um, we, we heard in one of the weekly meetings, um, uh, one of the members for the West Houston squadron, a lawyer named Don Johnson, <laughs> um, brought in a veteran and kind of kind of did the lawyerly interrogation thing and kind of did a cross-examination it was yeah cross-examination you know and and it was it was really cool i mean here's this guy and, and he's telling us all this really cool stuff about you know his time during world war ii mm -hmm. and so you know we we thought hey we why don't we do this and then that led us down the path that ryan discussed about us finding the veterans history project for the library of congress and, and interviewing people and our first interview in fact was a guy named Alan Senior, who was a, a B-24 waste gunner during World War II, who volunteered, <clears throat> excuse me, to be our first interview. But while we were also at the West Houston Squadron, they helped run the Wings Over Houston Air Show, which was a huge air show uh, in the Houston area. And they had an autograph tent. And they knew that we had a passion for, for history, oral history. So they asked Ryan and I to run it. And for a couple of years, we ran the air show. We had all these amazing people in there, like the Tuskegee Airmen and all these fighter aces and famous people, Tex Hill. But one of us, maybe it was Ryan, had an idea that, hey, we've been interviewing local veterans. Why don't we have them in the autograph tent? And we got a little pushback from, um, you know, from the, the coordinator for the Wings Over Houston. They're like, well, are people going to want to get an autograph from like some dude down the road? And we're like, I don't know, let's try it. So we brought in some of the people that we interviewed in Houston. We made storyboards for them. We had pictures mm -hmm. that people could sign and people loved it. Mm -hmm. People loved it. The line for those stories was every bit as long as the line for everyone else's mm -hmm. and the genesis for the Veterans History Project as a podcast was there. It was the idea that everyone has an awesome story. Mm -hmm. You don't need to go to them. They're already around you. Just go out, talk to people, document these stories and share them with people. And so years later, um, Ryan and I were 
talking about how do we share these stories with people, right? Outside of the fact that they're archived in this vault at the Library of Congress, where it reminds a lot of people of like the Indiana Jones movie when they walk yeah. through the archives and the boxes are everywhere and who knows what's in there, right? And so, you know, uh, Ryan talked about maybe writing a book and we kicked around some other things. And the idea of a podcast made the most sense for us. We can pull select clips from people we've interviewed, add commentary, add context, add a little bit of background to it. You know, how do we meet these people? These were people we knew, right? There's a lot of podcasts out there that will feature certain interviews. But I mean, you know, we went to their houses. We hung out with them. We went to their memorial services when they died. Mm -hmm. We want the genesis for the 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 vet for the the warrior next door podcast is making sure that people know about these stories and that they're they're everywhere they're all around us Ian, you you hit the nail on the head I, you know i after starting with vbc i may not have before starting with vbc i may not have noticed how many veterans live just in my my block and uh realized one day that there was a navy flag flying right around the corner and there was a big sign in the front that said happy 100th birthday um, and it was like, whoa, there's a hundred year old, you know, World War II Navy vet, you know, who lives right around the block. And you're right, Warrior Next Door. That's why I love the title of your podcast. Um, did you and were you intimidated when you first started the interviews? I know when I started with BBC, I was so, so scared of like, oh, am I going to say the wrong thing? What do I ask? What do I do? Uh, how did you sort of figure that out on the fly? Well, I'll say, if you don't mind, I'll jump in. You know, the um, you know, like, like Tony said, the first interview we had was Alan Sr. And, you know, we were talking with him at this at one of our squadron meetings. He's like, look, I'll be your guinea pig. Why don't you come over? And and, you know, so we were like, OK, so when Tony and I go to Alan's house, you know, we tell this story a lot. But, you know, we pull up and we're both nervous. We're like, what are we? You know, we got we had a rigid list of questions to ask. You know, we weren't into the free flow interview yet because we hadn't any experience. We didn't know how to do that. Mm -hmm. And so you know, we pull up and I'm like, all right, well, there's this house, all the porch lights on. Uh, well, I don't know. Are you going to go up first? Well, I'm not going to, yeah, I'm not going to go up first. You're going to go up. So we went up and we knocked on the door and, you know, him and his wife, Joyce were, uh, you know, absolutely, you know, gracious people, awesome people. And we just sat down with him and, you know, got everything set up at his dining room table. And, uh, you know, we went through our list of questions and, you know, the good thing, the great thing about Alan was he, you know, he, he was able to go ahead and tell his story, even though we had these kind of, you know, uh, you know, terse little questions like, you know, how often did you write home to your mom and dad, you know, and things like that, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, as we did more and more of these interviews, it got easier for us to, you know, we had the questions bias at, at some point, but we that was more of a a fail safe in case we ran out of things to talk to the person about some of these veterans don't have much to say some of them don't remember a whole lot about their their experience and so you need some fallback stuff to pull on you know to to, mm -hmm. to pull out of your hip pocket to ask them maybe to jar something loose and get them talking about something you know but you know as you know the warrior next door i'll just kind of tell this little story all my life, I grew up in the really small town of Palmyra, Illinois. It's south central uh, Illinois in the middle of cornfields and bean fields and uh, hog confinements and all that kind of stuff of the farming area of central Illinois. Well, right next door to me in my hometown of 750 people was a guy that I didn't know was a World War II veteran until after I started doing these interviews. Oh, wow. And he was literally the warrior next door to me, mm -hmm. and I didn't even know it. 
and so I went, I, I spoke to him and said, you want, would you, actually, I think my dad set it up. Would you mind, you know, letting Ryan interview you? He's like, sure, you know, I'll, that's fine. And I found out he was a half track driver during the Battle of the Bulge. And he had all these great stories. And he was, I think, the first guy that I interviewed by myself. And, uh, you know, right there in my hometown and, and everything. And so, you know, there's there's always these stories. You see these guys in your hometown or like you said, you know, Sean, on, you know, in your neighborhood flying the flag. And you're like, I wonder what that guy's story is, you know, and, and you don't really ever know whether, you know, if, if they're if they're flying the flag and they're wearing a hat, I kind of feel like that's a little bit of an open door to go talk to them. Right. Some guys don't even do that because they're pretty guarded about their service and stuff, you know, but yeah, but but most of the people that we ended up interviewing was through word of mouth. Yeah. Right. So once once we interviewed Alan, um, if, if you play all of our tape at the Library of Congress, we send the un unedited stuff there. It's not uncommon at the end to have us on tape to hear the veterans say, hey, you know what, guys, you should reach out to so-and-so. Here's his number. Mm -hmm. And through strictly through word of mouth, we went from having someone be gracious enough to allow us into his home and be interviewed to being to having so many people wanting us to interview them that Ryan and I at some point had to divide and conquer. We had to start interviewing people separately. And then we would come together at work and we would share the stories that we had. And I'll add, a, I'll add two more things to your question. Thing one, I'm still nervous to this day when I go and interview somebody. <laughs> now, the, the anxiety is over something different. The first interview was just because it was our first interview and I just felt like a poser, a pretender, right? Hmm. What am I doing here? Why, why do I get the benefit of this man's trust? Yeah. <clears throat> Now the anxiety has more to do with, I don't want to screw this up. I don't want to miss anything. I want to make sure I capture all the things I'm supposed to capture. And that has led to the second point I want to make. Oftentimes, Sean, when we're doing the podcast, mm -hmm. Ryan and I are listening to these interviews for the first time since they were collected back in 2003, four, five. And you probably know this is an interview. I'd like to get your take on this. When I'm interviewing, I'm listening but I'm also having to take notes and prepare the next question. Ryan and I have gotten so much more out of re-listening to these interviews sure. we collected over a decade ago than we ever did when we sat in front of them the first time. It's almost like we get a chance to re-examine and reabsorb even more of their experiences um, because of the anxiety we felt trying to conduct the interview. And now we yeah. can relax and listen to clips and share it with people. Yeah, no, I, I completely hear you. And as we've been talking, this is my notepad of scribbled <laughs> notes of just like, you know, you, you go in with an idea of like, okay, this is where I think the conversation is going to go. And yep. then, uh, and anytime I'm doing uh, research for our, our VBC, you know, happy hours that we do on Monday nights, 7 p.m., um, you know, I'll be sitting there and within the first 15 minutes of, of the veteran talking, I'll get six other rabbit holes that I want to dive into. And even the ones that, like you said, the, some of the ones that don't have so much to say, you keep the ball in the air and you just keep asking questions and something happens where suddenly the door opens and yeah. you find something that they really, something either uh, struck them while they were uh, you know, deployed or something happened uh, where they wrote a letter home. And then I start to dig in on that a little bit and, uh, and, and, and it goes off script completely. And we end up in a completely different area and you, and you find this superhuman element that, boy, it gives me shivers just thinking about it because suddenly this person uh, is opening up to you. You're a complete stranger. We may never have met. We're talking on Zoom. 
you know, but they're giving me a piece of their life story that meant something to them. And I feel like is, we always say at VBC, it's, it's therapy in a lot of ways. And oh. it's so much, it's so good for them to just sit there and let it out. And, oh. and we've had so many of those moments. Okay, I'm a dog. Segue, I'm a, Tony. <laughs> yeah, I'm a dog on point here. That the other thing that we have learned that we didn't appreciate when we were, you know, doing the interviews, is is that therapeutic effect. Mm-hmm. That look, you hear this over and over again from a lot of veterans, especially World War One, World War Two, maybe to some degree in Vietnam. They came home and they didn't talk about it. And I think the reason why a lot of people allowed us to interview them when they did is they were primarily at this time in their 70s and 80s, and they were kind of in their golden twilight years. And maybe they just felt like, hey, if if I don't, if they're not teaching this in high school, then I need to share it with these guys. So it's available to future generations or whatever the reasons were. But the thing we didn't appreciate was how therapeutic it was. We have learned through the course of doing this podcast about PTS. We were told not to call it PTSD because it's not a disorder, for example. Mm-hmm. And that um, and that the best thing that people can do who suffer from a traumatic event for most people is to talk about it, especially mm-hmm. if it's um, with their battle buddies, with their mm-hmm. people that were at reunions or whatever, to, to, to be able to, to let it out that every time they talk about it, they feel a little better. And I, and I, and we didn't appreciate the whole concept of some part of these conversations that we have with these veterans can actually be like mentally helpful for them. Completely. And, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, something that's so interesting about what you're saying and that I found is that when I'm able to get actually somebody of my, uh, my generation on to talk about the, you know, the war on terror, uh, wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, I feel like it's a like finding a unicorn at this point. Because as much as we want to get the younger generation on, it's like they came back and I think they're just ready to like have their job, have their family, and they don't really need to talk about it now. But I feel like in about 30, 40 years, it's going to creep back and they're going to say, I really want to talk about this. And that's why it's like VBC has staying power because or in anything, you know, the Veterans History Project has staying power because there's always going to be a veteran who's going to want to tell his story, talk about what he went through, what, you know, what his whole generation, their war. Yeah. And, and, and to me, it's our job as civilians, as non-military personnel to not only listen to their stories and share them and make sure that the lessons from them are, are understood, but, but to also, to also make sure that these veterans understand that we appreciate them, that we're grateful for what they do. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's this quote from a veteran that said, um, something to the effect that the worst part about being a veteran is having people not know or forget what you did, what your sacrifices were. Mm-hmm. And in fact, with, re- with respect to some of the therapeutic element of this, Ryan, could you share with Sean really quick, a very recent example with a 97 year old World War II veteran who landed on D-Day where we kind of had a chance to walk with him along this journey for healing. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, Sean, you've probably heard through through Lars Mickey um, and and uh, and Nick about Bill Parker, who is a, a, a veteran that we interviewed. He was uh, in the first wave. He was in the 29th Infantry, Infantry Division, excuse me, of the 116th Infantry Regiment. He landed first wave Omaha Beach on D-Day. Wow. And uh, he's still alive, still around. I mean, there's just not many of these guys left. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, we, we interviewed him uh, here in, in this room, actually, last November, a year ago, and um, his story was just fantastic. We got three hours of, of tape with him. Then 
we were asked to go with him back to Normandy for the first time since he landed there um, on June 6, 1944. So Tony and I and our families went with Bill back to Normandy this past summer and were there on June 6. We stood with Bill on Omaha Beach on June 6, 2022. It was probably one of the most amazing moments of my life to stand there with the guy who was on that beach 78 years prior to that. Well, anyway, long story short, um, you know, while we were there, um, you know, he, he, he goes on the beach the, for the first time. He got to go on the beach twice while we were there. First time was kind of hectic. There was a lot of people around. He was, you know, was with a group of other veterans. And you could see it on his face. You could mm -hmm. look at pictures of him now from that moment. He was frowning. It was a stressful thing for him to be standing on that very beach. But one of the things that was interesting was how different it looked now compared to 78 years before. Uh, children running and playing, families playing on the beach. Uh, you know, it was a very nice setting, bucolic setting and stuff. Well, then a few days later on June 6th, we got to go back down the beach. It was a nice sunny day. and Same thing was happening. There were all these families on the beach. Everybody was gathered around. A lot of people were there because it was June 6th, of course. And when they saw this guy standing there who landed on that very spot 78 years before, he was a rock star. You know, no. um, he got to stand at the overlook at, at, the, at the American cemetery and he looked down on the very area that he landed and he had all these French civilians gather around him there and they all came up to him and were thanking him with tears in their eyes, you know, and he said later on at the very last day we were there, I went up to Bill and I said, Bill, how are you doing with all this stuff? Because he had been mm -hmm. suffering from PTS ever since the day he landed you know he yeah. saw a lot of horrific stuff he um you know uh dealt with it for his entire life didn't tell his his wife about it didn't tell his brother or his parents he wanted to mm -hmm. but it was just not in the you know it was not the the culture to do that you know right. you probably know what i'm talking about and so he held this stuff in his entire life and you know it's like a pressure cooker you know if you don't release the valve every once in a while it yeah. just builds up and builds up. That's why these reunions where these guys can talk with their battle buddies is a pressure release valve for these guys, you know? Well, anyway, the last day he was there, I was talking to him and I said, you know, how, how are you doing with all this? You know, he's like, well, you know what, Ryan? Um, last night was the first time in 78 years I was able to sleep all the way through and I didn't dream about dead bodies on the beach. Wow. And that was profound. We yeah. all the whole group that was there with him, we just, we hugged him and we were like, hi, you know, it was the, it was the, it's the reason for, you know, it's what we all hoped would happen was some sort of peace be able to be given to him. And he even said, I did a follow-up interview with him after the trip. And he said that he feels like not only did that trip help, but doing all the talking about it that he's been doing with like Tony and I and with his best friend, David, and the research we've been doing, trying to follow his path through the war has really benefited him. He said, if he feels like it has been really therapeutic for him to go back and kind of look at things now, you know, 40, 70 some odd years later, but with people around him that are telling him, look, you know, this is why you had to do this. You know, he had a French woman come up to him at that overlook. At, at Omaha Beach on crutches and Bill was standing there overlooking Omaha Beach crying 
And this woman comes up, this French woman comes up to him and says, you know, you don't need to feel bad about this. You, you don't need to, uh, you, you know, worry about what the legacy is for what you guys had to do. She's like, you were safe in your country, living your own lives. And because we couldn't protect ourselves, mm. our government could not protect us. You had to get out of your country and come over here and save us. And she said that they were immensely thankful for that. I mean, we saw numerous people come up to Bill and give him gifts and, and hug him, mm -hmm. uh, thank him. There was one fellow who grabbed his arm at, right there at the Overlook and said, he was crying too. He said, thank you for saving my country. Wow. And it was the most poignant moment that, that I had witnessed to that point. So it is true. I mean, talking about it is what little Tony and I can do with these, for these guys. But you know, anyone that goes and speaks to a veteran, if they're willing, um, provides them an outlet to kind of get, you know, release the pressure in a way, you know. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine for both of you standing there with him that first day. What do you, you what you can't, it's almost like you can't say anything. Like, what, what can you say? Like yeah. us as civilians, that's the thing that I find probably the most difficult. And it's like, I understand that I will never understand what you've been through. And like, I can sit here with you and you can tell me the story. Um, but I know there's that disconnect. I know that I'll never understand it, but I'm trying to, uh, find a way to, to, uh, give you a, a platform to, to tell that story or, or an, an avenue to do it. Um, that's safe. That's, you know, um, and I think that's part of it. You can sit in a, a room with a veteran and talk to them about their story. They feel safe. They feel trusted. They feel like they can, they can let it out. Um, you know, because otherwise it's, it's like, oh, I don't, you know, they might be, you know, might not want to share these, these really intimate details of people that they served with or, uh, conflicts that they were a part of. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's very, very traumatic. Mm -hmm. I think the fact that we were strangers mm -hmm. for, for these interviews helped us uh, over yeah. and over again. We would hear people tell us who sometimes the vets would have their wife or more often like their son or daughter in the room while they were being interviewed. And when it was over, the veteran would say, <laughs> I've never talked to anybody about this before. Mm -hmm. And their, their kids would say, I've never heard dad or mom say these things before. And I just think in, that some things are easier to say to strangers and battle buddies than they are to your family. A perfect example, my dad uh, served in the Vietnam. He was a weapon specialist on the carrier, the USS Ranger. Mm -hmm. um, he has told me things that have happened to him during the service. I wanted to run tape. I said, look, I want to collect your memories. I want to put these you know, on camera and put them in the Veteran History Project, share them with our family. And he told me, he said, I don't feel comfortable doing that. I don't want to do it. Wow. So I, I'm, what I'm, what I'm considering is seeing if I can get a volunteer from, uh, from one of the local colleges who have these mm -hmm. programs to come over when I'm not there and interview my own father, because yeah. a lot of these individuals, the, 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 the people that they don't feel safe sharing these memories with, not because they don't trust them, but because they got a completely different relationship with their family members. They often will feel a lot safer with uh, strangers and definitely with their battle buddies. So one of the things that Ryan and I say a lot in our podcast, because it's so frequent that we capture 
footage of a veteran talking about their struggles with their their nightmares and their PTS is we try to encourage veterans to, to, to talk about it, to find a group, to, to, to go get some help. And in fact, Bill Parker, this World War II veteran that we just mentioned, mm-hmm. he went to one of these groups after his wife died relatively recently at a church called Crook of the Hills in Tulsa, Oklahoma, that area. And that's where he met his friend, Dave. And Dave has been the one who has been able to connect him with other veterans and people like Ryan and I to share mm-hmm. his story and to help him heal. So, man, if you're a veteran out there and you're struggling with this, you have nightmares and you're having problems with, with, uh, with mental health, um, the old school approach of just keep it inside and suck it up and rub some dirt in it. It's just, it, it just, it's not helping anybody go find a group, go talk to some people. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and, and the interesting thing about doing the scuttlebutt over over the last couple of years is that we've had multiple episodes about uh, different treatments for PTS. Uh, and the, one of the more recent ones, which I found very interesting, was a post 9-11 vet who realized that uh, um, judo was a release for him. So he created the Knife Hand Company. I had him on recently. Then their whole mission is connecting veterans with grappling martial arts studios to experience some level of like therapy. They, they don't go in and tell you to tell their stories, but they do one-on-one grappling and feel like that physicality working with another veteran helps them to like get through some stuff. Um, that was one of the more obscure ones that I, that I came across, but I've just sort of been fascinated about it ever, ever since. Uh, now, it's so hard to say you guys have done 200 interviews. What is the thing that you've learned? What, you know, before you started the interviews and what did you expect and where are you at now and what you've understood about the veteran experience? Ooh, wow. That's, that's, that's a, that's a tough one. Um, you know, I guess, you know, with all the veterans that I've interviewed, um, you know, I would, I don't know, I guess I would say that um, you know, the, 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 probably the biggest takeaway for me has just been, um, I mean, I would say just what we've spoken about, you know, with respect to, uh, the code that these guys are adhere to and, and they don't really talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, everyone has a great, you know, each story, um, no matter what they did, they've got great stories. They have, you know, things that happened only to them. And like, you know, like Tony has said many times, each story is like a fingerprint. Each one is unique, you know? And so you learn lots of great things about all these different, you know, these various jobs and roles and theaters and, and wars that these, these guys and gals have been through and everything. But, you know, understanding just the, uh, the personal side of it and, and how it impacts each one differently. There are guys that have been through so much that they don't appear to really they, they, they hide it well. They don't appear to really be impacted by it like other people would have been with, you know, with those same experiences, you know? So I'm always marveling at how the individual from person to person can handle things differently. And I, I do think that that's probably their ability to, to conceal it a bit better. So it depends mm-hmm. on the profession that they went into. Like there was a Marine that we interviewed and his name is Harvey Hunt. He was, he landed on four Pacific islands uh in the marine corps first wave in three out of four of the invasions he was on uh, uh Kwajalein, tinian saipan and iwo jima 
And Jeez. the only one that he didn't get wounded on was when he was not in the first wave. <laughs> it was on, I think it was Tinian that he got wounded on. You know, he got shot right through the jaw and everything. And that guy was the, I mean, classic Marine guy. He went on to become a lawyer after the war. Mm-hmm. And I think that that probably has helped him be able to keep his composure throughout life. You know, when I look back on it. Um, so it's always interesting to me when you hear about some of these stories, uh, you know, how each each person has been able to handle their own trauma that they went through. Yeah, I, I, for, for me going in and then what I've learned is similar to Ryan. Uh, we'll have veterans tell us about some horrific things that they experienced. Mm-hmm. And for me, it, it, it's, it speaks to what Ryan's saying is the, how resilient humans can be. Mm. How, how can you, if we look at Harvey Hunt again as another example, the very first beach he landed on, within the first five minutes, uh, two men in his squad were shot in the head and were dead. And he and another guy were the only two that was left. They hadn't even gotten out of the water yet. Haven't gotten out of the water. And, and they just get out of the boat and bam, one guy's dead. And this is just some of the things he experienced. Yeah. And, and what I mean by the resiliency is how do you come home from that? and give a crap about whether or not your license plates are expired. You know what I'm saying? Right. I've asked that very similar question from a couple of guys. I'm like, you've been through some stuff. So you came home and probably, you know, you don't sweat the small stuff now. It's just like, <laughs> yeah, what can you do to me? <laughs> it's, 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 just, it's incredible to get a letter from HOA because you didn't cut your grass. Right? <laughs> With everything that they've done. You know what I'm saying? Right. Yeah. And the other thing that I learned is this is something Ryan and I have heard over and over and over again. Every time we want to interview somebody, they'll say the same damn thing. I didn't really do all that much. My story is not that interesting. Right. I mean, we just had a guy on our Facebook page reach out to us because um, he and Ryan had a chance to meet at a, at a homecoming that he had he spoke to. And we're trying to get him on the podcast. And he's like, no. He goes, I only landed on one island. I only landed on Iwo Jima. Why do you guys <laughs> want to talk to me? It's like... <laughs> what only see here here's something that i i hope every veteran understands for an for someone who's not a veteran who's never served in the military neither ryan and i have served in the military just the fact that you signed up for the military or were drafted automate automatically makes you a rarity yep. because most people in the united states don't do that mm-hmm. just the fact that you went through boot tra- boot camp we're trained to do something that you typically won't do in civilian life, like be a sonar operator on a, on a destroyer, makes you even more interesting in that regard. Mm-hmm. And then if for whatever reason you have to serve in combat in any capacity, whether it's a support troop or the tip of the spear, just being a veteran and experiencing the things that you experience automatically makes your story interesting. So for these veterans, they don't they don't see it as interesting, and and it, I can't tell you how many interviews we've started up by them saying I don't really have you know much to say, and then by the end of it, Ryan and I are just like gobsmacked, and our brain is numb from what we just heard. Yeah, and they're not saying that just to set us up for that. They really believe that they haven't really done all that much more, and I think the reason for that is because they had their battle buddies with them, and they went through the same stuff, maybe even more than what they experienced. Mm-hmm. And so from that perspective, they feel like they haven't really done anything. But from our perspective and the perspective of the people who they're protecting and we need to appreciate them, it's it's ridiculously special. Well, and I, I would say one thing also, I think a lot of times uh, these guys 
are looking at this from the perspective of, I know the, who the ones are that did do something, and those are the ones that didn't come back. And in the yeah. grand scheme of things, they feel like they didn't really do much, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And so that might be what's what's behind some of that, you know? Um, but, but yeah, it's so true. I mean, I don't know how many times we sit down with a guy to interview him. He's like, well, how much, you know, I'll say, oh, we, you know, this tape has about 60 minutes of time on it. Oh, I don't, I don't know if I can talk for 60 minutes. I'm like, well, I'm like, you know what? That's okay. Just mm-hmm. let us, I'll ask some questions. We'll, 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 you never know. Sometimes we'll pop in a total of three tapes talking to yeah. these guys, you know? And yep. so it's, it's, it's really, it's really interesting how it all ends up working out. Yeah. And, and can I add one more thing, mm-hmm. uh, just, just really quick. So, you know, we're, we're talking about, you know, men who have been in combat and they've done some things and, and how resilient they are. The other thing that Ryan and I learned is that these interviews where they were in combat, but they played a support role and they didn't have these, these typical sort of war stories that I think people expect to hear from, from veterans or, or read about in the book. Yeah. What we've learned is, is, is all of them are amazing. Let me give you an example. There was um, a woman we interviewed named Dorothy Gibbons and she was an East Coaster, New Jersey girl, and she wanted to join the war effort because her husband was off fighting in North Africa. Mm-hmm. And so uh, she joined the waves and ended up, so that's the Navy auxiliary, right? Yep. She ended up in Oklahoma, of all places, this New Jersey girl. And the base that she was working on was the genesis for the, the, the Navy drone program. She was working on a base that was developing drones that had developed drones that these drones had crashed. It had sunk ships in the Pacific against the Japanese in World War II. Mm-hmm. So here you got this person that, that did a couple of things. One, you've got a non-combatant serving at home, sharing, a, sharing with us some amazing knowledge about a program that I didn't know was the, the genesis for everything we're seeing going on in the military today. And the second thing she shared with us, she said, being a New Jersey East Coaster, she would turn her nose up to people from Oklahoma or whatever. And by being forced through a wartime service to work with and get to know people that were outside of her echo chamber, she started to realize, you know what? These people aren't so bad. And she lives in Oklahoma to this day. We think, Ryan and I have a theory based on that interview, that because the World War II generation came out of the Great Depression, went into World War II, were forced to live communally in many ways yep. and intermix with each other, that when they came out of the war, they, they could explode and work together and do projects that we've had a hard time duplicating because we care more about who gets the credit than getting the job done. It's a good point. And, and I will uh, echo that certainly, uh, which brings me to a question, which it, this might send us down a, a rabbit hole. I hope so. But being civilians and having said what you just said, do you feel service should be mandatory? Ryo? So, I mean, myself personally, even though I have not gone in, I wish I had. I considered it when I was in high school, mm-hmm. uh, but for whatever reason, I, I, I was just, you know, in hindsight, I wasn't mature enough to make the decision to do something like that, which is the, precisely why I should have done that, you know? Um, but no, I think, I think a minimum two years would be great for everyone. You know, I mean, we've had veterans tell us that. Harvey Hunt told us that, that, you know, other people have told us that at the end of the interviews. You know what was interesting is at the end of these interviews, I don't know how many times Tony and I will be interviewing a World War II veteran. And then at the very end, they shift to the Vietnam War and how 
upset they were at how the kids, the, the soldiers were treated coming back from mm -hmm. the Vietnam War. And they look at that whole culture that was going on, that counterculture that was kind of going on, the war protests and stuff. And they feel like, you know, everyone should have to serve for a few years. Uh, first of all, it gives you a shot in the arm of discipline. Maybe it kind of gets you, you know, a, a straightened up a little bit, but yeah. it gives you an appreciation for um, what this country really means, what you're fighting for. Um, and so, you know, maybe it wouldn't be the best thing for everyone, but I do think that, uh, you know, having more of a push, more of an incentive to do that, you know, maybe you go to, you, you do it for a couple of years and maybe you get free healthcare the rest of your life or something. Wouldn't that be awesome? You know, that would be, you know, there's some things that I think um, that would be very beneficial for our young, uh, our young kids today to be able to do that sort of thing. I yeah, agree with I, that. Yeah. I feel the same way. I grew up, I was a, I was a, a scofflaw, right? I, mm -hmm. I, I mean, I was definitely a misdirected rebel with no cause and, I, I, I wish I had joined the military now uh, during those years that I feel like I wasted just kind of not really doing anything, but just being a knucklehead. Mm -hmm. At least I could have, you know, had a chance to interact with, with other people, appreciate different cultures, different points of view at a much younger age. So right. I think, I think some sort of service, whether it's a military or, or other types of service that could be made available for young people to help other people. Um, uh, I, 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 I think that'd be great. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. And, uh, uh, you know, you, you reminded me because we have a veteran in our network, to go back to what you said about the Navy wave. Uh, Julia Parsons, he lives here in Pittsburgh, uh, is a part of our, a lot of our VBC events. She's 101 years old. Um, she wasn't allowed to talk about her service from World War II because she is one of the people who helped decode Enigma. Oh, wow. Her That's husband, so awesome. her late husband never knew what she did. He passed away before he found out. She oh. didn't know she was allowed to talk about it till she walked through a museum and saw um, uh, one of the encryption devices it's, and said, you guys aren't allowed to have that here. And they were like, yeah, we are. It's an <laughs> artifact. <laughs> And that started this whole thing where she was like realized, oh, I'm allowed to start talking about this. And she remembers like the first time that she opened up about it with her neighbors. And, you know, we've heard that story of just like warrior next door of just no one knew what she did until she finally decided to say, I, I helped decode Enigma. Um, and, you know, it, we were constantly uh, blown away by her story of what she was, you know, what she accomplished at, on the home front. You know, it doesn't have to be in the front lines. It doesn't have to be Battle of the Bulge or Omaha Beach or Iwo Jima right. um, or Vietnam. It, it, you know, it's it's the whole war effort at that point. Everybody was somehow involved. Everybody knew somebody that was serving as opposed yeah. to nowadays where you kind of be hard pressed. Um, you know, I mentioned the hundred year old that was lived around the block. There's a gentleman who's my age who lives a little further along that's that's Air Force, I, or, you know, was Air Force. And, and I talk to him all the time. Um, and I, you know, and I think that something that I've realized being a civilian and having this podcast and just putting myself out there as somebody that's passionate about veteran stories is that any veteran I meet who might see the hat or, uh, who might strike up a conversation with me, I immediately am able to just kind of go into like interview mode. <laughs> and, you know, if I'm in the line at Starbucks, <clears throat> you know, or wherever, if they say like, oh yeah, I was Navy. Oh, you know, when did you serve? Oh, well, you know, whenever, you know, it's like, oh, interesting. So you were in during this time and they are like, they kind of perk up and they're like, who are you? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so it's really, it, it, 
I I am so thankful and grateful to the VBC for kind of giving me that confidence to step out. And for people listening who are like, you know, I'm just, I, I don't know what to say to a veteran. Do I just say thank you for your service or what do I do? You know, I've had the advice for them of just like, yeah, thank you for your service is nice. Um, you know, most guys will say, yeah, no problem and keep moving on with their day. I was like, but if you give yourself just a little bit more and you take a step further and ask them when they served or which branch or why, suddenly you open up a conversation that shows a little bit more than thank you for your service. Sure. Yeah. One of the things Ryan and I've talked about on our podcast is, uh, you know, to take these, these devices, these phones and turn them around and start collecting stories in your own life. How many people know how they're, how, how many people listening right now know how their parents met? How many people listening know? Yeah, exactly. Know uh, anything about their lives growing up before they met said parent. Yeah, there, there are so many things when we have Christmas is upon us. We're going to be a bunch amongst the family members. Oftentimes it's multi-generational. You know, we can all start by, by taking these phones and, and either putting them down and listening to people in our family about things that happened in their past because just living through history automatically makes some of the things, some of the stories you can share interesting in a sense that it's hard for modern, you know, how, 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 how do we talk about the missile Cuban, the, the, the Cuban missile crisis unless we live through it? Yeah. Those sorts of things. My kids ask me questions about the 9-11 attacks on the towers because they don't have that perspective. Just crazy, so, right? I mean, like, yeah. I, I'm only 41 to date myself, but I always knew at that time, I was like, my kids someday are going to come up to me and say, what happened? Yes. Where were you? What was going on? And you, you know, know what's going to surprise you, Sean, is how old they are when they finally ask you that. My kids, when they're teenagers, before they start asking me about, yeah, I watch YouTube and I see these planes crashing into towers and we went to Iraq and killed a bunch of people. It's like, no, 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 no. You're going to, you're going to understand this a little bit better. So, yeah. so to me, starting off by just getting to know your own family better and then allow mm -hmm. that to give you the confidence to have these conversations at the airport or at the grocery store where you see the hat on someone and you ask them some questions because you care about what their experiences are and you have an interest in it. And then you're right, Sean, I've had those moments where you had these conversations and this veteran, their eyes light up like this dude knows a little bit more than just what's on my hat. Right. And then they really open up. And it's it's to me, it's magical when that happens. Yeah, totally. And, and I would say last summer would be the first time after two years with BBC that I saw a gentleman walk by that I didn't know with a Vietnam hat on. And I just like, you know, out of nowhere, I was just like, welcome home, brother. And he was like, he stopped and he looked at me. He's like, thank you. And just kept yeah. going. And I was like, oh, that's cool. Cool. Yeah. Like, okay. Like I got through that first one. And now I feel like, you know, you can say that, you know, to more for people who have listened to the scuttlebutt, they've heard sort of our style. I come on, we introduce, we tell a bit of story. We hear about some obscure piece of military culture or something, you know, maybe get some history. Um, but the style of warrior next door podcast pulls from everything, all the interview you guys do. Um, but I love the element that you guys are sort of like having the interview in the background, but also popping in with a lot of context. Can you take me through sort of like what the listener should expect whenever they download your first episode and even your most recent episode? Yeah, yeah. sure. So, so uh, you know, what what the model, you know, Toy and I talked about this quite a bit when we were trying to figure out what, what our show was going to be. But 
Um, you know, each with each of these interviews with over 200 veterans that we've interviewed, each one, like, like I just said, each story is unique. Uh, each veteran has was in a different branch of service, served in a different theater, served in a different conflict. Um, so, you know, most people out there aren't geeks like we are that sit back and, and, and just eat this stuff up. Most people, uh, if we're lucky, they know about World War II. They know we won. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of students and kids out there that don't know that stuff. Then you you talked about how, you know, in high school, you were so frustrated because they didn't really cover World War II very much. Well, yeah. that's a self-inflicted wound. We should have had a whole class, I think, in high school on World War II history because it's made us what we are today as a country. You know, it was a huge inflection point for our nation's history. But anyway, um, what we do on our podcast is we take an interview, we um, we go through, we listen to it. Like if I interviewed the guy, I'll go through and listen to it. I'll pull out clips from the, from the interview and we make a list of clips. And then Tony and I will, you know, one of us will do research. The other one's kind of there to be the gee whiz sort of guy. Um, and you know, and hear it for the first time. Like a lot of times Tony will have an interview that he did, but I've never listened to it. So I'm listening to it. He's providing context on things. And I'm like, oh my, I didn't know that happened or this happened. And it's true. I really am learning things. And so what we'll do is, um, you know, as a, we'll talk about how the veteran got involved in the war, in their conflict, or however they were in the military. We'll talk about what was going on geopolitically at the time, whether it was the Korean War or World War II or Vietnam or the Gulf War, and and we'll put things in context. You know, we'll, we will, we'll, you know, everybody comes in at some point in the story. Each person comes in halfway through the movie, if the movie is the war. Sometimes they come in and they, they jump out of, of the story, you know, at, on their own time. And so mm -hmm. that's what this is. We say, all right, well, when so-and-so got involved in, in the 116th Infantry Regiment, he went overseas, Bill Parker, January of 44. Well, guess what he was going to do? He was going to invade France. And so we put into context what was going on, why France needed to be invaded, that sort of thing. And there's there's information in there for everybody. It's not just basic level stuff. We go into a lot of detail on some of the strategy. We go into detail on the weaponry at times. Mm -hmm. We go into detail on a whole bunch of things. And uh, we, we just tried to provide a pretty colorful picture of paint a picture of what this veteran was immersed in, what their story was all about. And then we let them, of course, tell the story in their own words. We get complaints at times from listeners. They're like, just let the veteran talk. But then we'll get just as many comments, compliments, like, I love it how you guys, you know, stop and start talking about things. So it's kind of a yin yang sort of thing. So we yeah. decide, you know what, we're just going to do what we're doing. If people don't like it, it's too bad, but it's it's the sort of thing that we think is necessary and it's kind of what we're known for now is being able to provide a lot of background detail on each of the person's story and so, also that person that might say like why don't you let the veteran talk it's like there is the actual you know you could go to the library of congress and get that correct. full interview that's so yeah if you want to hear that that's a great way to push correct. them that way mm -hmm. yeah we, we have a separate youtube channel that just has videos on it we don't even maintain it we just point people towards it you can go yep. watch the entire unedited video I think the genesis for the format came from when Ryan and I were conducting interviews, we'd come back to work or we'd go talk to our families. And, you know, as much as a geek I am, I, I didn't really want to sit and listen to an hour long interview with questions. But what I noticed people getting really excited about, even if they didn't have a, a mind for history, 
is when I would, would they say, what do you do this weekend? Oh, I interviewed it, you know, so-and-so. Interviewed so-and-so. What, what are you talking about? Oh, it's World War II vet from never. Oh, really? Yeah. And I would just share with them a couple of the clips, a couple of the highlights that they said. Mm-hmm. And they'd be like, that is so freaking cool. So the idea behind the podcast is, hey, if you want to go listen to the whole thing, you can do that. But just we're going to pull out little dribs and drabs that can that can bring people in. And I really love the comments when people um, who aren't history um, inclined will leave comments on our Facebook site saying, by you putting the context, it helps me understand their place in history, what they're talking about. Yeah. And it brings up their curiosity. And, and not only that, but Ryan and I learn a lot when we're doing the research on this. Yeah. For example, the tipping point that we learned for the, the Nazification of Germany, which we got from interviewing someone who was a member of the Hitler Youth, mm-hmm. happened with something called the Reichstag fire, where basically their capital building or their, their, their building for uh, their version of Congress burned down. Mm-hmm. The Nazis blamed the communists. The communists blamed the Nazis. No one knew who started the fire, but it allowed Adolf Hitler and that regime to implement a bunch of laws that just turned it into a hardcore uh, Nazi state. Well, did you know, and we didn't know this, that the Iran revolution, the Iranians we're dealing with today, that the tipping point from these you know, centuries of monarchical government to what we have today, a theocracy, what the tipping point was a fire as well at a place called the Cinema Rex, where mm. almost 600 people burned, and the monarchs blamed the, the theocrats, and the theocrats blamed the monarchs, and a civil war erupted. So the other part of this is not only do we get to, to learn, or not, I'm not learned, but to be able to share with people some of these, these things and these connections, but Ryan and I are learning and geeking out along the way. Right. So man, that's a win. I don't know. You know, I think that, that it's certainly more fun to listen to geeks geek out because we're passionate about the subject matter um you know it's it's better than than sort of hearing like a a lecture that's sort of like at rote and all that you know i think uh for for most of the bbc audience who's probably primarily uh you know vietnam era uh you know a lot of them podcasts they just didn't exist like what is it radio is it not what it you know is you just record yourself and put it on you what what's a youtube um you know so but as podcasts have become much more mainstream and people realize oh all i got to do is download this and i can listen to it like the radio but it's subject matter that i enjoy um yep. i think it's just a perfect medium so where do you where do you guys see the warrior next door podcast going from here it, from your more recent episode you're kind of you're are you reading through a story at this point? It's a multiple part episode of uh, what are you reading? Yeah, so this is a new experiment that we've we've tried. Uh, we're trying out here. Um, you know, since it's the month of December and it's it's the it's the time of Christmas and and the holiday season and everything. Um, you know, there's a so it's kind of a this what we're doing right now is a bit of a, a story that is related to my wife's grandfather in a way. He was in the 44th Combat Engineers in World War II. And he was stationed, he, he was brought into the town of Wiltz, Luxembourg, right as the Battle of the Bulge started. When they, wherever the Germans started to attack, they brought him in, his group in, who were just construction guys, cooks, things like that, to hold the Germans off while, you know, as long as they could from this town that was built down into a valley, which is, we all know, the worst place to be if you're surrounded, right? Yeah. So, well, anyway... He was he fought in that town. He was captured. He was a POW the rest of the war. And I my wife would tell me stories that her grandpa would tell her about being a POW and, and the fighting, all that kind of stuff. Well, just 10 days prior to the war 
the Battle of the Bulge kicking off was this story called the American St. Nick story. And it was the 28th Infantry Division who had a couple of GIs that decided that they were going to throw a Christmas party for the children of the town of Wilts, Luxembourg, who many of them had never experienced Christmas because they'd been under Nazi occupation since like 1940 or 41. So they, they did this whole thing where they gathered all this candy and all these treats that were sent to the GIs by their families back home. One of the guys dressed up like St. Nicholas, which was their tradition there in Luxembourg. And they had this really big event there. And it was a huge morale lift, not only for the town, but also for the GIs. They had just come out. A lot of these guys were sitting there, had just been through the Battle of the Hurtgen Forest, and they were kind of convalescing in Wilts. It was a quiet area, and it was right before the Battle of the Bulge. So um, anyway, this story has been written into a book by the author Peter Lyon, and I approached him earlier this year and said, hey, this is a great true story. It's really, it, it, as I like to say, it, it shows what the best of humanity has to offer at a time when we were seeing what the worst of humanity had to offer, you know? Yeah. And it was just a really awesome, poignant story. So, you know, 100% true. Um, and so he was, I said, what would you think about us re doing an audio, like a reading of your book on our podcast just during the month of December? And then maybe every year we could get new people other like maybe first responders, maybe other, you know, uh, uh, children of veterans to read chapters again. And we do it. We keep it as like a living document where everyone can read a chapter and you can have basically it's it's uh, uh, it's people listening and saying this is who we are. This is who Americans are. We you know, this this they have a big heart. I mean, honestly, you know, we're, we're a giving nation you know, and that exemplifies it in my mind. So that's why we're doing this right now. It's just a, it's a, it's an experiment in a lot of ways, but we're seeing really good response from it. Mm -hmm. uh, so right now we've got the author reading some of the chapters. We've got Tony and I each reading a couple chapters, but we also have children of the character, the, the GIs that did the actual event in 1944 reading the chapters too. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a pretty cool thing that the book doesn't exist on audiobook. Mm -hmm. So you can listen to this for free and uh, you know we'll probably pull it down after the first of the year and we'll probably put it back up every December, maybe with new readers mm -hmm. and uh, just kind of keep it as a you know a tradition was what we kind of have in mind. So we'll see how it goes. but but you know, um, yeah, I mean, that's kind of the story of what we're doing right now. it's it's a it's a different kind of thing right now. Well, I love that. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's it. And normally December, you know, is something where a lot of podcasts will take a break or play encore episodes. And so, you know, Ryan's idea to have people who are relatives of of the actual GIs that are the main focus of the book, like Richard Brookins, who was the American Saint Nick. You know, we've got we've got it. We've got his relatives reading some of these yeah. chapters, right? Three of his children are reading chapters in the book. Yeah, so yeah. we thought that was really cool. But where we want to go with this podcast long term is, um, did I would lie to you if I said we didn't have dreams and aspirations of hitting it big and being able to do this full time. Yeah. But but where we've landed is, Ryan and I love doing this. Ryan and I are best friends. Ryan and I get a chance to meet every quarter, either in Denver or in Tulsa, and drink a lot of beer and catch up 
and geek out on history and share these stories with people. And our podcast is growing, but we're not looking for, this isn't death or glory for us right now. It's just simply, we want to keep doing this because we enjoy it. And because we enjoy being able to meet people who have the similar passion, people like you, yes, right? People like Ray Harris of the World War II History Podcast. He's had us on. People like Peter Lyon, the author of this book. I mean, we're mm -hmm. having a chance to hang out with cool dudes like you because of this podcast. So why would we stop doing it? Totally. And right back at you guys. Um, this is another sort of deep question brought up by something that, that Ryan just said. Uh, the idea of what did America mean to you prior to starting the podcast? And did you get a different idea of what America means throughout your interviews? You go first, Tony. <laughs> you got to think on that one. I, I, I think some of the things that um, that have changed for me is, you know, I, I had a very kind of um, history channel view of, mm. of, of, of the military and World War II and combat and, and veterans. And what I mean by history channel view is, um, you know, if you watch various specials on the history channel when they used to actually play you know historical documents and stuff they were a lot of it quite frankly was was america's version of the story it was you could be called propaganda yeah in the sense that you know a lot of it is from the american perspective mm -hmm. about certain things that occurred and why we got involved in, in say world war ii or the vietnam war and so i think my initial feelings going into this had this, I would call it kind of a superficial kind of John Wayne view mm -hmm. of what it was like to be a veteran. Yeah. And over the course of interviewing these human beings and having them talk about how wasteful war was mm. and how some of the, the best people they ever met were killed or maimed mm. and how some of them in certain conflicts like the Vietnam War question why, you know, our, our, our level of involvement, that doesn't make them any less of a patriot. What's beautiful, what I've learned about my change in being an American is it went from this idea that there was really nothing to struggle with. Everything was perfect. Everything we did was right to appreciating living in a representative republic where I can have a critical eye towards what we did through these oral historic, these oral accounts and I have the right to have a different viewpoint or to, to look at other people's point of view. Um, look at what's going on in Russia right now. They're getting fed only one view. That's all they can know. I, one of the things that drives people nuts about America, and I know other countries out there see it as a weakness and they're wrong, is how contentious we can be. Mm -hmm. But that contentiousness, that listening to other people's point of views because of these interviews is what makes this great. It allows us to correct our mistakes and reinforce the awesome stuff that we do, like the things for the American St. Nick. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's my view on how it's changed as I've been able to hang out with a bunch of old people and have them tell me some really cool stuff. 
There's nothing wrong with hanging out with a bunch of old people. And I'll say this like you're doing it right now, actually. I I, I took like a sojourn last week and I was like, I'm going to I'm going to go play some chess with some old guys. And I went and sat down with them and I had the best time that I've had in months. Sat down. They might they might have. I don't know what age they were. They might have been 80, 90 year olds. I had a ball. I heard their stories. I asked them questions. I was like, this is. I, I don't need to go out to the club. Like, <laughs> no. old, people, old people rock, man. Ryan and I have listened yeah. to a lot of old dudes and we freaking love it. But yeah. but Ryan, how has your view changed? I, I, I'd i like to hear no. this perspective. No one's ever asked us this before. It's a good no, question. That's, these are great questions. You're making us squirm a little bit. Um, so <laughs> I, I would say for me, um, prior to getting involved with this, you know, my perspective um, was that World War One and World War Two and Vietnam were all basically similar in the the trajectory of the of the country but mm-hmm. i have learned that really world war ii is the big kahuna in the room to our country's you know our country's history um, aside from the civil war and the american revolution um it, you know so much of what we see and deal with today geopolitically comes right out of the the, the outcome of world war ii um, everything from you know um, our allies which were our enemies at the time Japan and Germany, um, you know, to uh, our, our allies at the time that are now enemies, so to speak, Russia and China. Um, and, and also, you know, just the fact that, um, you know, the technology, the advances, you know, the, the, how, how powerful it was that this country, which was really at best a second rate military, we still had a horse drawn cavalry at the beginning of the war, World War I weaponry, how we went in three years and eight months from being a second rate military at best to being the preeminent superpower in the world with a nuclear weapon. Yeah. That is that to me, that in a span of one presidential term, we could go that far wow. with everyone pitching in together and stacking hands to the moon and getting these things done is just amazing to me, you know, mm-hmm. and it just goes to show how the system that we have for our system of government and when everyone really pitches in and helps and we're all on the same page now not that we weren't all 100% on the same page back then but it we everyone had the same you know perspective that was in the involved in the war effort mm-hmm. and man did we get it done it's just amazing to me you know I, I i marvel at that i marvel at the 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 stories of the veterans saying you know we tony and i would ask them well did you ever fear that we would lose? And they say, no, nope. You know, there was never a doubt in their mind that they were going to lose the war. They were like, we're fighting two fronts. How do you not worry about that? You know, right? but, but they knew we just, we were going to get it done. You know, that we're, we're, you know, for one thing, you know, our geographic location benefited us a lot. You know, we were on our own continent, away from Japan, away mm-hmm. from Europe. You know, for Japan to invade the U.S., that would be a Herculean effort. They couldn't do it. They would really not be able to do it unless they came in through Alaska and came down that way. But again, you know, more power to them if they want to try that. But so anyway, I guess my point is just that, you know, is that it was such a huge, um, you know, uh, inflection point for our nation's history, who we are today, the technologies, the geopolitical situations that we have today, the... uh, the our status in the world the the uh, living uh, the the conditions of living that we have compared to other countries in the world 
um, we're really, um, and a lot of that comes out of directly from World War II. You know, oh. you know what saddens me really quick, though? Please. Is it, it, it really frustrates me, and this is the human condition, this is a United States thing, that we often need to have a crisis to get us to band together. I wish we could, we could bottle whatever that is that happens and sprinkle it over or put it in our drinking water so we can, we, can, we, can, we can do that, we can behave that way all the time. Yeah. What I think is interesting in history repeating itself is over and over again, in just about every war we fought, except for the earliest ones, our enemies have said the same thing. All oh, those decadent, rich, soft Americans, they don't have the stomach for this. And they're, they're wrong every time. They always mistake our, our openness, our dissension, our polarized politics for weakness. They don't realize the strength that that provides by having the freedoms to have that dissension. And it's, I mean, you know, going against America is like, you know, you got these twin brothers, I have twin boys, and they argue all the time, and they beat on each other. And they'll do that until someone else beats on one of their brothers. And then the two of them go after them like a couple of velociraptors. <laughs> so so that, that's the other part about this whole thing when I listen to these veterans and study history that I also I marvel at as much. Not just what we could do, but that we're always, people always misinterpret the contentious nature of American culture, society, racism, politics as a weakness. And mm -hmm. it's not, it's our greatest strength. Both so, so well said. And I, and I don't think I would have asked that question of a veteran. I felt more comfortable asking that of, of two fellow civilians who have who have dealt in the veteran space and, and, and heard from the very patriotic people that have served and, and put their life on the line for the country. Um, you know, and, and I think that's the, the thing that has changed my mind the most after after working with the Veterans Breakfast Club and, and hearing these stories and working with the podcast is, um, I, you know, I, I think I spent a, a time in my life where I didn't feel very patriotic. I felt very counterculture. Um, I felt very like, you know, no, I don't, you know, I don't want to do this, that, or the other thing. But um, <clears throat> I think the thing that I hear the most whenever I sit down and listen to the veterans at our, at our breakfasts and, you know, on our, on the podcast is I hear the story of us as a collective. Yep. This, this history we, we kind of keep going back to, and it only, one, it makes me not sweat the small stuff because some of the things they say are like, boy, I was so mad at spilling my cereal this morning. Why was I mad about that? Because this, this guy went through Omaha beach, yes, <laughs> you know? Um, and, and two, uh, you know, other than not sweating the small stuff, it's, it, it's really just sitting there and saying, wow, I am so much more proud to be an American hearing these stories and understanding what the sacrifices were. And, knowing that whenever we stand up at the beginning of our events and, and we, um, you know, sing the national anthem, uh, that I feel really proud being in a room full of guys who are, you know, and gals who are women who are, you know, just so um, committed to this way of life, that whether they were drafted or whether they enlisted, uh, it, it's something that really consistently sort of enters my mind when I stand there with all of them and I listen to them and, you know, ask them questions and all of that. Uh, you know, and I, and I was, that's why, what's, that's what sort of prompted me to ask the question of you to you both, because I thought maybe you've experienced that same thing of like, my mind has changed on the idea of what America is and what my role in it is uh, when I sit down and listen to the people who've, who've served the country. Totally. What I love is, is none of the veterans that we've interviewed have ever advocated war. 
Mm-hmm. Um, they, ne- they didn't want to be heroes. They were just doing their job in the course of doing that. They, they have experiences that, that can blow you away. It's like, wow, that version of what America is to me, the imperfect version, the yeah. version where you didn't want to be a hero, the version where you wanted to come back, but you did it anyways. That's far more courageous than any of the sensationalized crap Mm-hmm. That Hollywood historically has put out the real, the real story of the American GIs and what they had to do by listening to these guys and reading books based on their stories, way, way more powerful than the John Wayne version, in my view. So I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And, and I'll say this, um, uh, Sean, you know, I, I feel like, you know, uh, you know, with us doing this and, and with you, you participating with, through the Veterans Breakfast Club and, and all of these, all, all these individual groups, like the guys from the Logbook Project and everything, everybody's yeah. doing their own thing. And as the World War II generation, you know, fades into history and we're, you know, and, and we're getting with, you know, into the Korean War generation and, you know, we've got Vietnam guys that are prime interview age now to talk to and stuff. It's up to us to keep these stories alive for the American public and for the world to listen to and to learn from. I feel very strongly that, you know, the baton is being passed in a sense to people like us Mm -hmm. to make sure that we keep these stories out there and digestible. And we point out the things that we can all learn from each one of these interviews and each of these veterans that we talk to. So, um, that's kind of what I, when I look at what Tony and I are doing, um, I would love to be able to 20 years from now, look back and go, wow, we, you know, we were involved in really a reawakening of some students to understanding and appreciating, you know, the, you know, World War II history or, or, or Korean War or Vietnam history. Um, that's probably a tall order, but if I could help keep it, keep people aware of it in some ways, maybe because their dad listened to our show and they talked to the kids, that's worth it. I mean, I just want to keep it out there and not let this stuff fade into the dustbin of history. And I'll follow up with, it was interesting, a couple, last week we had a in-person breakfast and never had it felt so prominent in my mind. What I just explained was a a Vietnam vet stood up and started talking about uh, that same thing you said, Tony, that America needs that, that togetherness that and he and he, he broke down i mean this is this is a vietnam vet who probably wasn't welcomed home um dealt with a, a, a significant amount of trauma through not just the war but coming back to a divided america but still has that ideal in his head of like america really needs to get together and and you could see how passionate he was about that by him talking about it and it just i don't know if i'll ever forget that just like this gentleman who just, I, I wouldn't know him from Adam, but he just loves his country and wants everybody to be on the same page working towards uh, the same goal. It just goes to show, it just goes to show real quick, sorry, Tony, um, how you don't know what the other man's dealing with a lot of times. Mm-hmm. You know, you're the guy sitting right next to you. you know, they, those guys have walked a mile in their shoes. We have not. We just have watched them do it. And it's interesting when you hear them say things like that, it puts an, an underscore to everything that we're doing and we're trying to, you know, kind of, uh, you know, educate people on, on the veteran experience. So, well, so, you know, you, this guy obviously was, 
evoked a lot of emotions in in you in terms of it sounds like his frustration, just mm -hmm. a lack of harmony that we're experiencing now. Let me provide uh, maybe a message of hope because I am an intrinsically jolly, optimistic, happy person. <laughs> and that message is this. And I heard this from a veteran I interviewed. He had an issue being called a member of the greatest generation. He mm. said, we're all great. He goes, you put any generation in a crucible in the United States with, with our culture and our values. And he said, and, and, and people will come together again. People will rise up. It sucks that it takes a crisis to do it. That part makes me cry. That part makes me sad, right? Yeah. But, but I, I think that even with everything going on in the world today in the United States, if something were to happen and our young men and women were called to do what the World War II generation had to do, and I'm not disrespecting them, I'm honoring them by saying that it's not about their generation. It's about the cultures and the values that we have that allow volunteer armies to stand up and, 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 and have to do what they need to do, whatever their generation calls them to do. That mm -hmm. makes me proud to be an American, to know that, that we're capable of that uh, whenever it's needed. And we've, we've repeatedly have shown that. And I think that after that, there will be people like us that will say, tell us the story of what you, what you did, you yeah. know? Yep, um, I agree. Boy, I want to give you guys both the last word here. Uh, I've had such an enjoyable conversation. Uh, it's certainly a highlight for me for this current season. Um, but, uh, you know, where can people find you? How can they support your podcast? Uh, yeah. So, uh, you know, we're on uh, every major podcast platform, Apple, Google, Spotify. I mean, everywhere that you can subscribe to podcasts, you can find us. We also have a website called thewarriornextdoor.com. That's really just a page that has a listing of each of our episodes. And you can go there, listen to it on your computer for free, of course, and everything. Um, you know, uh, you know, right now, I mean, we don't have sponsors or anything like that. We're just kind of doing this as a passion project um, and and everything. And, um, you know, uh, we do have a Facebook page. If you just go to Facebook and you look for the Warrior Next Door podcast, you can uh, you can visit that. You can like the page and you can see us pop up in your news feed and everything whenever we post some things. Uh, and like Tony said, we do have a, a YouTube channel uh, where we post the raw video of each person we feature um, and i think we're going to be uh having a web page like a real bona fide web page coming here shortly where we're going to have a lot more content available maybe have everything all in one spot nice yeah I'm, and i i guess my last word is i am uh so grateful to be able to um share this experience with a friend of mine and with other people um i love being on uh, podcasts like this, or, or, or I, I love the connections that are made yeah. um, by basically Ryan and I are putting ourselves out there, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we're, we're out in podcast land, every gaffe, every misplaced intention, every stupid thing we say is out there for posterity. And we're putting it out there because we love connecting with people and sharing these stories uh, with other individuals. And um, man, I, I, I really hope that your listeners um, take a few minutes to go check out our podcast, maybe listen to uh, the Marta Warner uh, episodes um, that were uh, dropped recently. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and for crying out loud, series. yeah, go, go on Facebook, make comments, tell us all the crap we did wrong. 
<laughs> you know, that's fine. We're here to learn too. Yeah. But, uh, but my parting shot is thank you. Thank you for having us on your podcast. We hope your audience um, enjoyed uh, some of the things that we're doing. And maybe we'll have a chance to speak with them in some form or another after they've had a chance to hear what we're doing. Fantastic. I hope so. Uh, to our audience, make sure you check out the Warrior Next Door podcast. We'll have all the links here in the description. Just scroll down, click on, listen to, and also please like, share, subscribe, and ring the bell on YouTube for the scuttlebutt so you're the first to know whenever we release new episodes. You can always reach out to me, Sean, S-H-A-U-N at veteransbreakfastclub.org with any comments, thoughts, questions, uh, critiques, uh, or ideas for future episodes. Always open to, to our, our listeners' thoughts. Um, thank you both again, Ryan, Tony. Been a pleasure and an honor. I, I hope to catch up with you guys again and have you back on my podcast, or maybe I can pop over and enjoy some uh, on your podcast. It'd be Love great to, to, to continue the connection. Um, thank you again. And I hope you guys uh, wish you have a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. I Thanks, Sean. You, we Sean. appreciate thank it. Thank you very much. Thank you for watching this episode of The Scuttlebutt. I'd like to take a moment to thank both of our sponsors, the first being DND Metal Recycling and Auto Salvage. They began as a small hauling and used auto parts operation in the Pittsburgh area in the late 1970s, but they've grown into a full-service metal recycling company with two locations, Lawrenceville and Tarentum. DD accepts all types of metal, both ferrous and non-ferrous, that may be generated by industrial manufacturing, construction and demolition, small commercial entities, as well as individual customers. They have a wide variety of material handling equipment and are capable of managing any type of job in a timely and efficient manner. You can contact them for quotes and availability at DD. &D. That's DD &D Auto Salvage. Dot com. Uh, thank you so much to DND. Uh, they've been a sponsor for quite some time, and we really appreciate their support. Uh, the second being Tobacco Free Adagio Health. They are dedicated to reducing and preventing tobacco use and to getting the word out about the hazards of smoking and secondhand smoke. They're all about health. So they want people to quit, and they have classes and nicotine replacement therapy and a popular quit line, which is the easiest number to remember ever 1 800 quit now. They also educate people, children especially, about tobacco use from cigarettes, cigars, pipes, chew, snuff, and other nicotine products like vaping. Finally, Tobacco-Free Adagio Health advocates for public and private policies that ensure healthy places to live, work, and play. You can learn all of what Tobacco-Free Adagio Health offers at tobaccofree.adagiohealth.org, or you can watch our recent episode with Tobacco-Free Adagio Health on the Scuttlebutt, uh, where they talk about a lot of the programs that they offer for those who are looking to quit. Thank you to both of our sponsors for their continued support of the Scuttlebutt podcast. We really appreciate it. Thanks.